Good morning. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. Um, I hope you feel that way too. I hope you've been encouraged by people today. Um, I hope you've been stirred up to love and good works to this point uh, in the service. And I hope, if not, we we can continue uh, to do that. Uh, I appreciate the songs that that Bill led. Uh, Beneath the cross has a really great line that. I don't know, stood out to me this time, singing it. And maybe it's because we've been thinking about this, this, this passage so much. Um, but it's at the end of verse 3. At the end of verse 3, it says, Two wonders I confess, the wonder of redeeming love and my unworthiness. Those are two things that are a little difficult to wrap our heads around at times. Um, just how unworthy we are of the sacrifice of Christ, and just how wonderful the redeeming love of Christ is. And that's the love that we're trying to build ourselves up to, right? That's, that's the love that we're trying to attain. That's the love that we're, we're each aiming for, right? We've been looking at John 13, verses 34 and 35. By this, all men will know uh, as we look at what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Because it's the love that we show to one another. That's going to be the testimony of our love for Christ. So for the last few weeks, we've been considering that. Jesus places a pretty heavy emphasis on just how important it is that we show love to one another because it is going to be the defining feature of being a disciple of Christ. And then we talked about how later on in John 17, he talks about, uh, he has this prayer. And within that prayer is this prayer for unity. And, and, And this unity, having this love for one another, it goes even deeper than just proclaiming to the world that we are lovers of Christ, but it's also proclaiming to the world of God's love for us. Our unity proclaims to the world that God loves us. Are we representing God well in in that? So that's what we've been thinking about. And it's interesting, in verse 34, Jesus calls this teaching a new teaching, that you would love one another. And a few weeks ago, we tried to clarify uh, what that means. How, how How is this teaching to love one another new? We talked about how it's because Jesus adds this this qualifier, I think. He adds this qualifier of, even as I have loved you. That's what makes it new. So to the extent of which Jesus has loved us, that's the love that we ought to be showing to others. Because it's not new that God wants his people to love one another. That's not some new statement. That's always been a part of God's message. Uh, A theme throughout the Bible is this unity uh, that God's people were supposed to have. However... As we all know, unity becomes much more difficult the more diverse a group gets. It just does, right? Um, even though that wasn't as much of an issue under the old covenant, at least in, in theory, certainly under the new covenant, the gospel being for all, well, that presents a new set of challenges. Because what that means is we got people from everywhere coming in intended to be a part of one body. That means people from totally different backgrounds. Totally different upbringings, totally different cultures, totally different nationalities, totally different languages, and yet all of them are going to be brought in together. Through the blood of Jesus, right? That, that, that's the way we, we, we enter into this covenant, right? But then that unity is preserved, that unity is, 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 is attained through the love that we show to one another. And we know, we know how difficult this is because we just, we naturally gravitate to people who are like us we got young people who want to sit together at both sides. we got a little older but still young people all sitting together. Like we, we gravitate to one another. We do that sort of thing, old and young. We do that sort of thing just based on 
Whether we want to or not, a lot of times economic status does that. A lot of times our nationalities do that. We tend to gravitate to people who are more like us based on earthly standards, right? But I hope what we've, what we've realized to this point in this series is that the unity that we have through Christ, none of it is built on earthly standards. None of it is predicated on the similarities that we have with one another because of what we look like, because of the hobbies that we have and things like that. No, the unity that we have is built on one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. That's where our unity comes from. And so, we try to preserve this. We try to display this unity in the way that we love one another. In the way that we are hospitable to one another. We spoke about that a few weeks ago. In the way that we forbear one another. The way that we, we, we just put up with one another and tolerate one another. In the way that, that we stir up one another in love and good works. When we meet together as a body like we're doing this morning, but in other places too, that we are devoted to one another to stir one another up. Well, what I want to look at this morning is focusing on the command that we have to comfort one another. If I might insert this into the statement that Jesus says, By the way that you comfort one another, all men will know that you are disciples of mine. And even though this particular phrase, to comfort one another, that command comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I actually want to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to spend the majority of our time in 2 Corinthians, so go ahead and turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's go ahead and read um, some of those verses in chapter 1, beginning in, in verse 3. Second Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. Did y'all pick up on what Paul is talking about here? I don't think you need like some theology degree to understand. I think he wants you to know a little bit more about comfort and what that looks like and what we're supposed to do in that. And what I love here is that he uses ten different times in just these five short verses that word comfort. But then six different times he talks about suffering and affliction. Because why would someone need to be comforted except that they are suffering and they are in need of that, of that comfort. So Paul opens this letter, one of several letters to the Corinthians, with what kind of serves as, as one of the themes of 2 Corinthians, and that is comfort amidst suffering. And what's interesting is that in these verses, Paul lays out a, a sequence 
of sorts concerning comfort. In these first in verses 3 through 4 Paul explains that comfort first and foremost begins with God. God is the one who shows comfort. God is the one who gives comfort the father of our Lord and father of mercies as he's called. It be, comfort begins with him because it says he is the God of all comfort. God is the source of these things and he is providing it to us. We are the object of God's comfort. And he does this, it says, in all our affliction. So if God is the, comfort, is the God of all comfort, then he can provide comfort in all things that, that we struggle with. All of the afflictions that we go through, every single trial that we have, God is able to provide comfort in that. That's what this, that's what this passage is teaching, is that we should be able to find comfort in God through everything that we struggle with. But what's interesting is that we're not just supposed to read this and accept this and rejoice in this. Certainly there, there's a part of that, that we can all rejoice the fact that God can comfort us. But it comes with the responsibility that we have to then comfort others. So because God has given us comfort, we then give that to others. We've been talking about this whole time, right? In all of these, in all of these uh, sermons, I, I've tried to bring us back to that thought of we have received grace from God, and therefore we will then show grace to others. In our hospitality, in the way that we forbear one another, in the way that we stir one another up, and the way that we comfort, we do it because God has shown it to us, and now we have the responsibility to show it to others. And then in verses 5 through 7, we get an, a similar progression, a, a similar sequence that I think just amplifies the first one, and that is that Christ suffered for the purpose of comforting us, and through our sufferings, we can then comfort others. Now, I don't know if he's saying that um, it, our suffering ought to be a comfort to other people, or maybe as we comfort other people, we're going to suffer a little bit, whatever that might mean. We are intended, through the example of Christ, we are intended to then show comfort to others. Now, I don't know if you've ever attempted to do something like this. Attempted to, uh, to give someone a hug, put your arm around somebody when they were really struggling with something. Sometimes that can be a pretty difficult thing to do. Uh, because oftentimes it, it leads you into a pretty uncomfortable situation. One that really doesn't involve you, but you're involving yourself in, and that can be, that can be uncomfortable, right? Um, so if that, if that wasn't difficult enough, Paul adds a qualifier to this sequence. And in both cases, he adds it. He says we are to comfort others in the same manner as God. That's what that oddly worded sentence is in verse 4, uh, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction um, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. He's saying... Here's how you're supposed to do it. Here's how you comfort other people. You do it in the manner that God has comforted us. And the same thing goes for Christ, is that, that we, we suffer in the manner that Christ has suffered, to the extent that Christ has suffered. We, we talked about it before. This new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. He adds this qualifier. So this should come as no surprise to us that in our attempts to go comfort other people, it's going to be kind of uncomfortable. Because that's what Christ did. Christ suffered in that way. God has, has, has done these things for us, and we're told to then do the same for others. So how does God comfort? If we're supposed to comfort in the manner of God, how does God comfort us? I mean, that, 
That's an important question uh, to think about. We'll think about that a little bit this morning. But before we get into that, I think we do need to kind of define our terms a little bit. What does comfort mean? Well, I'm not going to stand up here and give you some crazy definition that you've ever heard of. Uh, It's it's actually rather obvious, I think. You're drawing near to someone. It's literal form. In the verb form, it means to draw near to someone. So you are intended to be in close proximity to them. Now, if you're not able to actually be with them, you're, you're, you're calling them, you're trying to be with them in spirit, things along those lines. And then uh, the noun form, one who is a comforter, is one who refreshes or rescues. We see that later on. Um, I heard somebody say, and I'll, I'll steal it and use it here. You can kind of break comfort down in, into two separate words. The word come and the word fort. So the word come, meaning you are coming near to that person. You are drawing near to them in their presence. You are genuinely with them, physically when possible, in spirit when you're not. But then when you're with them, you're like this fort. You are like an unshakable fortress of stability to them. You're one who brings, brings peace in the midst of chaos. You bring rescue in times of distress. That's the type of attitude that we are to have when we are providing comfort to someone. We're going to be this fortress for them in this particular instance. So how does God give us that type of comfort? How does God come near to us and give us that? Well, the first one is rather obvious. Uh, As it's implied in verse 5, the sufferings of Christ, well, God drew near to us, right? So that's one way that God has comforted us, is that He literally drew near to us through Jesus. God did not look down on us from above, but He actually came to us. John 1 verse 11, He came to His own. You look down at verse 14, and the Word became flesh. God Himself became flesh, and He dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came down from heaven, becoming fully human to receive children of God. And I love the description that Jesus kind of gives himself. He's like, oh, Jerusalem, I, I wish that I could be like this, this mother hen that gathers in her chicks. That's what, that's what Jesus came down to do. He came down from heaven so that he could gather people in, so that he could draw near to them. But Jesus does this fully. He fully draws near to us through suffering. Philippians 2 verses 5 through 8, we read this this morning. It's a familiar passage, but one that should bring us comfort. Because Jesus didn't just come in the flesh to live um, like some sort of like royalty or something like that. He didn't even come to be just ordinary people like you and me. He came to take on the form of a bondservant. He came to take on the form of a slave, the lowest of the low. He emptied himself so that he could know the fullest extent of suffering. It says in verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And Hebrews 2 elaborates on this a little bit. Hebrews 2 verses 14 through 18. It says that he shared in our flesh and blood. So all the things that flesh and blood go through, Jesus shared in that. The struggles that come with that, Jesus shared in that. Jesus shared in these temptations. He shared in suffering. He shared in death. All of these things. And yet, in doing so, he rendered the devil powerless. He removes the sting of death. He removes that, 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 that slavery that is suffering. 
being a slave to our own sin or being a slave to our own suffering, Jesus has removed that because he came to provide aid or, or, or we could say provide comfort to us. He says in verse 18, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So how does God comfort us? He comforts us by drawing near to us. And not just being human, but suffering in the same ways that we suffer. While other religions might provide some form of comfort, um, be that through words of wisdom or things like that, um, or maybe through just years and years of being around and there's a certain level of, of comfort that comes with continuity, or maybe because they do have really strong fortresses and things like that. And so, so maybe we find comfort in those things. But there is nothing else that can boast of a God who came down to his own to suffer in the lowest of low positions and die on the cross for us. We see God as the God of all comforts when we look at the cross. So one way God comforts us is that he drew near to us. He also comforts us in that he has, has given us his word through the Holy Spirit. Um, in John chapter 14, Jesus uh, meets with his disciples. We've been talking about this, right? And in that discussion in, in chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, he, he kind of unveils this thought of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is going to come to you. And he is going to be a helper. King James Version, American Standard Version, they actually use, he's going to be a comforter, the comforter. That's interesting. That's what the Holy Spirit is. He came to not leave them alone, but to be a comforter to them. And how is it that the Holy Spirit comforted them? Well, in John chapter 16, Jesus kind of talks a little bit about, well, here's what the Holy Spirit does. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Verse 13, he will guide you in all truth. Without going down the rabbit hole that is the Holy Spirit, one thing we see pretty clearly in Scripture, what the Holy Spirit does, he guides people into truth. And we ought to find comfort in truth that God has preserved for us. So this comforter is speaking the words of God to lead the apostles. And in doing that, he would reveal what sin truly is. In doing that, he would reveal what righteousness truly is. He would reveal the reality of judgment. These things would be revealed, and there would be comfort found in that. So if the Holy Spirit is the comforter, then the things which he does ought to bring comfort. And what the Holy Spirit has done is given us the words of God. And we have Scripture to be able to go to, and we ought to find comfort there. And the third thing that, that God does to comfort us is that He has given us one another. Ephesians chapter 6 and Colossians 4, uh, Tychicus is mentioned in both of those as being the person who is delivering uh, these letters. And, and, and in both verses, this exact phrase is used, that he may comfort your hearts. That's what he's coming there to do. Tychicus is being sent, not just with these letters, but he's coming to provide comfort for you. First Thessalonians 3, Timothy is sent to provide comfort. Verse 2, Timothy is sent to encourage and comfort them. But then Paul is then comforted by Timothy's message back to him. And so there's this two-way comfort going back and forth through communication with God's people. 
And then turn to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. In 2 Corinthians, uh, Titus is mentioned throughout this book. Um, but he's spoken of uh, quite a bit in chapter 7 and 8. We'll read a few things from chapter 7. Look at, look at what Paul says of him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start back in actually verse 4. So it says, Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in our affliction, in all our affliction. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So you see, there is this comfort that Paul is getting uh, just by seeing Titus, just seeing him was a great comfort to him. But then even more so in the report that Titus gives. Look what he says later on in verse 13. Same chapter, verse 13, he says, For this reason we have been comforted. And besides our comforted, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. There's that word. That, 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 he is a refresher to us. Titus is this comforter. So you see, God not only has drawn near to us. See, God has not only drawn near to us, uh, through Jesus and through his sufferings, not only has he given us his word, but he has given us one another to kind of complete this way in which God provides comfort. So if God has drawn near to us through Jesus, continues to draw near to us through his word, and he has given us one another, how is it that we then comfort one another? How are we supposed to comfort like God? Well, we, we kind of just went through that, right? So if we're going to do things in the way that God has done them, well, then we're going to do what God has done. So if God drew near to us, we then are going to draw near to God or to, to, to other people, that we are going to draw near to other people through or those who are suffering, those who are going through things. Galatians chapter 2, pretty familiar passage here in verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. All right, so if, if, if I have died and it is now Christ who lives in me, well, what does it say that Christ did? He loved me and he gave himself up for me. What does that imply about us? That we are going to love one another and give ourselves up for other people. And part of doing that is through drawing near to them, just getting closer to them. Romans chapter 12, look at that. Romans 12, beginning in verse 9. It's a long, long passage here. We won't look through all of this. But it seems as though Paul is kind of using this time to go through. Here's how Christians should be interacting with one another. Look at all the stuff that he says here. That we are devoted to one another. We're not lagging in diligence. We're taking care of the needy. We're showing hospitality. We're weeping with those who weep. We're associating with the lowly. We should find this unhypocritical love right here in this room 
This is the type of love that we ought to be showing to other people. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about us being a body of believers, right? That, that we're trusting in what, what every joint supplies, that every single member here is adding something to the body. So, if one member is not, well then we're all missing something. If the hand isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing, then we're all lacking. We're all falling behind, and therefore we need to come to the aid of that person who is struggling. May God open our eyes to notice those who are suffering and open our hearts to do something about it, to bring comfort to those who are struggling. But perhaps the best example that I could find outside of Christ comes from a group of friends who are actually called miserable comforters. That's, that's what Job calls his, his three friends. They're called miserable comforters. But before they become these terrible examples, they actually serve as wonderful examples for all of us. And there's three things that I want us to see from, this, uh, from Job chapter 2, verses 11 and 13. Three things that I think all of us can do rather, rather simply. Read with me. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, being Job... They came, each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept, and each of them tore his robe, and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him. For they saw that his pain was very great. So before they become miserable comforters, look at what they do. First it says that they made an appointment. They made an appointment together. If this wasn't just some spontaneous reaction. Granted, that that's, it, it's good for us to be spontaneous and be willing to do that. But they saw a great friend who is suffering, and they made an appointment. They purposed in their heart to go to his aid. They determined that this is what they were going to do. Um, their friends were willing to be inconvenienced by this long trip. And they were willing to be made uncomfortable by the sorrow of Job. But they saw a friend in need, and therefore they made an appointment to do it. But notice what they made an appointment to do. And that was to come to sympathize and to comfort Job. It wasn't to teach. It wasn't to share these personal stories. It wasn't to impart their own wisdom. Hey, sit down, let me talk to you a little bit. Even though that's all things they do incorrectly later on. But at least for the time being, they go just to bring comfort to a friend whose pain was very great. But how did they show comfort? This is perhaps the hardest part of it. They cried with him. Job's three friends just sat there and cried with him. They raised their voices and they wept. Each of them tore their own clothes. They, they threw dust over their heads. I think an attempt to make Job's pain their own pain. They wanted to suffer and, and, and look the same way Job looked as he was in his suffering. They wanted to make his pain their pain. They silently place themselves in the same dirt that Job is in. And they just sit there. They don't say a word. Why? Because they saw that his pain was very great. 
And you know what was better in that situation? That was just to sit there with them and not say anything. Can we do that? I think that's going to be harder for some people, myself included, than for others. But perhaps one of the best ways that we can provide comfort to somebody is just to sit there with them. Listen to them if they want to talk, but if they don't want to talk, you just sit there in their pain. Don't feel uncomfortable that there's nothing being shared. Don't feel like you have to solve whatever problem they're in in that moment. There, might be a, there, there should be a time for that later on that you are providing wisdom for them, but at least in that moment that you are just sitting there with them in the same dirt that they have placed themselves in, making their pain your own. I think it's hard for us to bite our tongue. But may God bless us and help us in doing that. But when it is the right time to talk, because there should be a time to talk, when it is the right time, we do what God does when He comforts us and He gives us His Word. We ought to share God's Word with others if we're truly going to provide comfort to other people. Not only are we going to draw near to them, we're going to draw near to them with the words of God. That was Job's friend's mistake. They spoke for God rather than speaking God's words to them. Psalm 119 calls God's word a light and a comfort. Peter even says in John 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Share those words with people. Eternal life ought to be a great comfort to us. Actually, eternal life is exactly what Paul uses to encourage those in Thessalonica, where we get this phrase, comfort one another, for the whole point of this lesson, comes out of this idea, comfort one another with the words of eternal life, the message of eternal life. Look at what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning of verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, those who have died in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain, will be caught up together with them. With those who have died, we're going to be called up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. The comfort that we ought to be sharing to other people is this message of eternal life. That even through all the sufferings, these, these little deaths that we go through all throughout our life, we ought to be looking forward to that eternal comfort, that eternal home that we have with Jesus. The best way we can comfort someone is through directing them to the words of Jesus. Directing them to the hope that we have through Him. And we're actually commanded to comfort one another with these words, with this message of hope. Now, I don't think we, we, 
I think part of the temptation when we're coming to people and we feel like we got to have answers and, well, i got to find the right Bible verse to, to, to fit this person's problem. And, you know, we, we ought to be looking to God's Word, but we ought to really sit down and consider what message we are trying to share. Because I think a temptation for us is to just strip some text completely out of context. It fits well in a mug, so we might as well be able to share it to somebody else. And we, 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 we start to think in those terms and yet, maybe, maybe there's something deeper within this passage that can truly be comforting. Or maybe if I just share this, this, this little statement, it might come across as insincere or something like that. My point is, we really need to know God's Word and what it is that we are sharing so that we might truly be able to, to answer the, the problems that they have and give them words of comfort. We also see at the end of... of there's these, sorry. Uh, we also see at the end of, of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the words of Jesus is what Paul is able to find comfort in. In 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 12, verse 7, he says, A thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, has been sent to torment me. Now, we won't go down as to what that means. Suffering might, in fact, be the simple answer for that. He's been suffering so much, he's asked God, hey, remove this from me. I don't want to go through these things anymore. And yet, Paul finds comfort in the words of Jesus. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We must lean on the grace of our Lord, trust that His grace is sufficient, and teach others of the grace of God. I'd like to end uh, by sharing a story. It's not my story. It's, um, although I, I, I think it's one that, that I hope will provide some comfort. I've actually referenced um, th this book before. It's called A Grace Disguised, written by a man by the name of Jerry Sitzer. He's a, he's a professor of, of theology at Whitworth University in Washington State. Well, he, something happened to him. He was driving home. He had his whole family in his car. He even had his mom with him. And he was hit head-on by a drunk driver. And in that accident, not only did the drunk driver kill his own pregnant wife, but this drunk driver killed Jerry's wife, killed Jerry's mother, and killed two of his four children. So in this one instance, everything in his life is totally flipped upside down. And he describes this moment in his book, A Grace Disguised. But throughout the book, he wrestles with, with what anyone would wrestle with going through a situation like that. Anyone who has truly suffered heartache, loss of a loved one, things along those lines. Uh, he wrestles with those things, that the aftermath of a terrible tragedy. Well, what do I do now? How do I move forward from this? The physical and mental pain that would follow him for years to come. And then, of course, that question of why. Why, why did this happen? And as he discusses these things, Sitzer attempts uh, to make his affliction our comfort. And that's 2 Corinthians 1 right there. That's, what, that's, that's his goal. And he, he argues, though, uh, in, in this, he argues that every loss, every suffering that we go through, he calls it a solitary experience. Meaning, outsiders can't truly know the pain that you are going through. 
even if what they're going what they are going through is the exact same thing that you are going through it is still a solitary experience in that you don't have my upbringing you haven't gone through the things that i've gone through you don't understand what the, these things that i'm going through right now so this tragedy happened to you i think we have this temptation of comparing tragedies and what a tragic thing that is for us to do. We can't, we can't be doing things like that. So he talks about it as a solitary experience. But even though it is a solitary experience, he writes this. He says, though it is a solitary experience that we must face alone, loss is also a common experience that can lead us to community. It can create a community of brokenness. We must enter the darkness of loss alone, but once there, we will find others with whom we can share life together. And then he goes on to uh, talk about how the, this, this is a choice. Not only is it a choice on the part of those who are bringing comfort, but it's a choice, it's a, it's a choice on the one who is being comforted. And that's a difficult choice, to allow more people into your life, to allow other people to serve you. But it's one that we must make, even though it provides the risk of, of, of future loss. But he talks about the joy of when both the, the one who is bringing comfort and the one who is being comforted, when both of those things are open to allowing this community he talks about the joy that comes when those two things work in tandem. Uh, he said people would, would, would call him and tell him how their lives have been changed through his experience, through his tragedy. But he talks about how that was only possible through the sacrificial love and this willingness to receive it. And this is exactly what's described in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 7. As you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. By the way that you comfort one another, all men will know that you are disciples of mine. I want to I end by just reading um, one last excerpt from this particular book, and then I'll offer the invitation. At the end of this particular chapter, Sitzer writes, It takes tremendous courage to love when we are broken. Yet I wonder if love becomes more authentic when it grows out of brokenness. Brokenness forces us to find a source of love outside of ourselves. That source is God, whose essential nature is love. It seems paradoxical to put brokenness and love together, but I believe they belong together. I've had wonderful encounters with people over the last three years. These were more meaningful when they came out of experience out of the common experience of suffering. A friend uh, from the college watched helplessly as his wife endured years worth of cancer treatment. My tragedy and his concern for his wife caused us to forge a deep friendship. An employee at the college has only recently been diagnosed with cancer. Again, our conversations have struck deep chords in both of us. Recently, I talked with a woman from our church who has AIDS, which she contracted from a blood transfusion. She has young children and fears for them. She loves her husband and feels for him. We discussed the peculiar nature of our circumstances. We probed for meaning, trying to make sense of it all. It was moving for me to hear her story and to share my own. My appreciation for people has grown immeasurably since the accident, though I have never felt more fragile and inadequate. My loss joined brokenness and love together. 
Brokenness drove me to love, and I found a source of love that I could not find in myself. I found it in community. And in the God who creates and sustains community for broken people like me. Is that what we're creating here at Oak Mountain? A community of brokenness? A community of people who are willing to, to comfort one another in sufferings and make their sufferings our own sufferings? Are we showing the love of Christ in the way that we comfort one another? Are you in need of comfort this morning? I hope you would, you would make that known to people. Um, if that's something that you need to make known publicly, uh, we, we can make that happen. We're going to sing a song. And, and traditionally, we have that song sung so that people can come forward during that time. And if that's something you want to do, we have time for that. But maybe, most importantly, you are seeking the comfort that comes from above. A comfort that comes through hope and eternal life. An eternal life that is only achieved through the sacrifice of Jesus. Have you submitted your life to Him? Are you a Christian? If you're not, I strongly encourage you to consider that. Think about Jesus a little bit more. Think about what He accomplished on the cross. If you're unaware, if you want to know more about that, let's sit and study and read through those things together. If you have any need of this invitation, please come up now while we stand and while we sing.